a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, really, I'm seriously glad that you are part of the growing audience of wrong thinkers. Not because this show is all that, but simply because I'm grateful to know that there are people out there who still value things that matter. Things like personal conscience, things like personal liberty, things like private property rights and free market principles and freedom of association. I don't know. They seem to have fallen out of favor. And of course, the last year and a half hasn't done us many favors either. But uh, I'm glad that you are part of those who are still looking for a solid take on what's going on. And hopefully what you're finding here is something that leaves you more sure at the end of the day about who you are and what you stand for than simply what you're against or who you're against. It's okay to discuss even tough topics. But I make a very sincere effort to do so without bringing more anger or more fear to the situation. Now, having said that, we're going to tackle some tough topics in this hour of the program. So, you've been warned. But these are topics that I think need to be brought up, if, if for no other reason, just to, to make people aware of them. Um, and also to provide the philosophical and intellectual ammunition if uh, you find yourself discussing this with other people so that you can know where you stand. You can understand what's at stake. I'm pretty clear on where I stand on a lot of things, but I always love people who can, can help me better state it more succinctly, more clearly. And that's what I spend my day doing, is trying to find the best information that I can find that I can then pass on to you. By the way, I have terrific sponsors who also make this program possible, including the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Well, let's jump right in here. Given the number of people who've been vaccinated who still become infected, you would think that would pretty much negate the need for vaccine passports, Right. The idea of the vaccine passport was, okay, this person is safe. You are cleared to enter this business or this this flight or to, to jump on this train, whatever the case may be. But there's an awful lot of people who've gotten the vaccine, who are fully vaccinated, who still are coming down with COVID and spreading COVID. So you would think that would slow down this push for vaccine passports. And to me, the, the, the worst part about the vaccine passport is you are essentially creating a type of medical apartheid. You're creating a different tier of society where there's a very clear delineation between those who have the passport, who are, you know, part of polite society, and the unclean. The rest, you know, the, uh, the rabble, if you will. The unvaccinated. It's segregation. We're just not doing it based on skin color alone, but it's segregation in the purest possible sense. And it's weird that the U.S. government still is plowing ahead full steam to implement vaccine passports. There's a great article from Helen Andrews. This is in the American Conservative. And it's a it's a doozy. She says, on August 10th, former White House Coronavirus Task Force Senior Advisor Andy Slavitt tweeted something snarky, as is his habit. 
If people who go out and buy fake vaccine cards get COVID, do they expect someone to put them on a real ventilator? One of his Twitter followers replied, we need a way to track vaccination that isn't on a little handwritten paper card, something that's very hard to falsify. You have ideas, contacts, resources, I bet. Make it happen, Andy. His response was, hold on for three and a half weeks and you will see. Well, that was two and a half weeks ago. Right now, she says the vaccine passport system is a patchwork. With multiple official and unofficial apps, New York State and New York City each have different apps, Excelsior Pass and NYC COVID Safe. Fraud is easy in some apps. Some others check your claim to be vaccinated against state health records. Many people avoid apps entirely and just take a photo of their vaccination card with their smartphone or carry around a hard copy. A standardized vaccine passport app would clear up these logistical snags. It would be the green light that prompts cities and private businesses currently considering vaccine mandates to start imposing them. Now, the Biden administration has said repeatedly there will not be a national vaccine mandate or a national vaccine database. Jen Psaki said back in March, the development of a vaccine passport or whatever you want to call it will be driven by the private sector. But even a private sector vaccine passport should be resisted by every possible means. It's the first step on a slippery slope to a social credit system, and the only time it can be stopped is at the very beginning. A vaccine passport system would mean, in practice, scanning a QR code anytime you enter a place where proof of vaccination is required. Restaurants, coffee shops, universities, concert venues, office buildings. Ideally, there would also be some way of verifying that the person listed on the passport is the same person who's presenting the QR code. Right now, for example, New York City's vaccine mandate for restaurants requires patrons present both a vaccine passport and a matching ID. You know, for for the the people who support this the most strongly, I'm sure, are also very, you know, we are against the Nazis, the fascists. And yet they are the ones supporting a system that is very literally papers, please. It's insane. The article goes on to state, there are very few places where scanning a QR code every time you enter a building is standard protocol. One of them is Xinjiang. I'm probably saying that wrong, but in China, another in Sydney, Australia, the new state of uh, the state of New South Wales earlier this year mandated QR codes be posted at the entrance of every workplace, retail store, restaurant, church, hotel, salon, pub, hospital and movie theater, plus taxis and Ubers, as well as large outdoor gatherings such as weddings and funerals. Meaning, everyone coming in must scan the QR code or sign in manually if they don't have a smartphone. Scanning again to check out is encouraged but not required. Police and private security guards have been posted at grocery store entrances to make sure the mandate is enforced. Fines are up to $5,000 for businesses and $1,000 for patrons. Now, right now, the system's being used for contact tracing. Probably will soon shift seamlessly into a vaccine passport. Premier Gladys Berejiklian uh, last week tested the idea of adding vaccine status, vaccination status to the same official state app that manages QR code check-ins, making it an all-in-one app. That was part of her announcement that uh, vaccinated Sydney siders would soon be permitted additional freedoms, like an extra hour of outdoor exercise. This system of rewards and penalties is reminiscent of the Chinese social credit system. 
which according to secondhand reports, some Australian bureaucrats explicitly cite in private as a model for their country to follow. Now, what people call China's social credit system is a patchwork as well. There are official and there are official government blacklists targeting fraud, non-payment of debts, traffic violations, and other anti-social behavior. These are mostly regional, though it's expected these local pilot programs will be knitted into a single national system eventually. Penalties include being banned from air or train travel or having your children excluded from elite schools. More intrusive and less subject to rule of law protections are the social credit systems of private companies like Alibaba and WeChat. These take into account social media behavior, purchase history, don't buy too many video games, even friendship networks, spend too much time around people with low Sesame credit scores, and and Alipay will lower your score too. Rewards and penalties are confined to each company's ecosystem, at least for now. The private systems are also expected to be integrated into a national social credit system eventually. But since apps like WeChat manage everything from users' messaging to banking, government services, and healthcare, their power to manipulate incentives might be even greater than governments. And the crazy thing that you have to understand about China's social credit system is that it's popular. A 2018 poll by the Free University of Berlin found 80% of respondents had a favorable view of the social credit system with wealthier and more educated users the most in favor. Now, there are a lot of folks who'd consider these kind of measures dystopian, but who have no problem with a bare-bones vaccine passport. What those people have to understand is this. Once Americans get used to scanning a QR code every time you go into a building, there is no way to arrest that trajectory at the specific point you you prefer. That's a pretty chilling article. From Helen Andrews, senior editor at American Conservative. She says, if the gold standard vaccine passport app is indeed imminent, people should start thinking a step ahead. If the eventual result of a social credit system sounds dystopian to you, then now's the time to resist. If we've learned anything from COVID, she says, it's that restrictions tend to stick around once they're imposed. And that promised back to normal is always just around the corner. I can't tell you where to draw your line in the sand, but if you were going to say no, this is probably a good place to start saying no. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to our sponsors, including lifesavingfood.com. I've been a big fan of food storage, well, ever since my first child arrived. That's the first time I really was hit with the responsibility of, hey, as a father, you are responsible for providing for your family and making sure that that little life is cared for. Well, my little one is 27 years old now, and... I'm still concerned about, uh, you know, providing for my family and making sure that we have things set aside for a rainy day. Now, chances are very good. If you're listening to this program, you probably have, have some similar preps. Do you have some gaps in your food storage program? Are there some places you'd like to fill in? Do you have something that's portable you could grab and go? 
I only ask this because my sponsor, LifesavingFood.com, has a number of different packages that could fit just about any budget or any need. So take a look at it. If you find something that works for you, fantastic. Be sure to use HYDE, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code at checkout, and they'll knock 10% off your purchase price. That's a pretty sweet deal. All right, this is probably the heaviest thing that I'm going to be sharing with you today, so consider yourself warned. If you need a dandelion break, maybe this is the time to take it. I've been reading Michael Snyder for quite a few years. He's a regular contributor to LouRockwell.com. Lou Rockwell is uh, one of my primary resources for wrong thinkers just because it has such a wide variety of writers and contributors who contribute on a daily basis. I've been reading Lou Rockwell for, um, I'm guessing, over 25 years now. Very close to it. It's, it's, been, it's been a long time. And Michael Snyder's warnings have have been very well thought out and on target. He's been warning about our change in direction towards dictatorship for many years. In his most recent column, he makes a point that we have to uh, acknowledge, and that is, this is not something that's going to fix itself. And unfortunately, a lot of people have that attitude. Michael Snyder says, if only George Orwell could see what we've become. Today I'm writing this article in the midst of a deep state of sadness, and he says, I have to admit, I haven't been this sad in a very long time. In fact, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to complete the article. What they are doing, the people who are seizing power to this country that I love, is really starting to get to me emotionally. He says, America is supposed to be a beacon of liberty and freedom for the entire world, but now we are on the cutting edge of the global trend toward authoritarianism. He says, I know that a lot of people have been leaving the United States in recent years in an attempt just to escape the madness. But at this point, we see authoritarianism on the rise just about everywhere. Look at New Zealand. Just look at Australia. Just look at the Philippines. At one time, people were fleeing to those countries. But now they've become some of the most authoritarian regimes of all. And he says, I feel so frustrated because I feel like I've been banging my head against a brick wall over the past decade. He says, I've written countless articles warning we were losing our liberties and our freedoms. And very large numbers of people all over the globe read those articles. But did they do any good? These are just a few of the titles that, uh, that he's written about. Thoughts on the new normal and the things we're losing as a society. Or without freedom of speech, what is going to happen to America? Or less government, more freedom. Here's another one. The police state is coming for religious extremists, evangelical Christians, pro-life activists, and libertarians. And 12 signs that Americans who love liberty and freedom should watch their backs. Now, Michael Snyder says, I warned this day was coming. Now it's here. For a while, they were content to whittle away our liberties and freedoms on the periphery. But now we are facing a full-fledged frontal assault on our most basic liberties and freedoms. And what makes it even more frightening is the fact that millions of completely brainwashed Americans are cheering them on as they do it. If our founders could see us today, they'd be absolutely horrified at what we've become. Now, listen to what he says next. Maybe you can relate. Michael Snyder says, because I'm often so critical of what has happened to us, a lot of people out there assume you must hate this country. But of course, that's not true at all. He says, I deeply love America. I deeply love our history. I deeply love our traditions. 
and I deeply love the values that this nation is supposed to represent. That is why it deeply grieves me that these things are now being ripped away from us. We are the generation that is witnessing the end of America. And he says, for whatever period of time the political entity known as the United States is allowed to continue, it won't be America anymore. Sure, the U.S. Constitution will still be on public display somewhere, and politicians will still pay lip service to it. But for all practical purposes, the dream of what America was supposed to be will be dead. Now, sometimes people say we have too many complainers, not enough people taking action. But Michael Snyder says, I am one of those people that did try to take action. I spent nearly an entire year of my life running for office, and my campaign manager traveled thousands upon thousands of miles so we could personally talk to as many voters as possible. Everywhere I went, I warned that unless emergency action was taken, there wasn't going to be a future for America. I begged, I pleaded, I delivered passionate speech after passionate speech, but in the end, it wasn't good enough. Why can't we have extremely passionate politicians that have fire in their bellies? Why aren't the liberty-loving members of Congress speaking up? Now, Rand Paul has chosen to make a bold stand, but where in the world is everyone else? He says, I'm so sick and tired of these do-nothing politicians. They're standing aside as our republic is literally being destroyed. A lot of people out there think that the changes we're witnessing are just temporary. They think that eventually this pandemic will fade away and everything will just return to normal somehow. What they don't realize is that the elite will always find another excuse to move even further down the road toward authoritarianism. Now think about it. Two, two decades ago, it was 9-11. Then it was the war on terror, which has now evolved into the war on domestic extremism. For the past couple of years, the pandemic has given them the cover they needed to greatly accelerate their program. He's talking about the, the power seekers, the opportunists. In 2021, the federal government is working hand-in-hand with big corporations and mainstream media to advance the Big Brother agenda. At this point, things have gotten so bad, we can't even criticize certain specific points of their agenda anymore, because if we do, we immediately get censored. For a long time, the Internet allowed ordinary citizens like you and me to communicate on a mass scale outside of their control. But those days are now over because they're clamping down really hard. Just like in George Orwell's novel, they want to control what we say, what we think, what we believe, and what we feel. Having an independent opinion is dangerous. Thinking for yourself is dangerous. We have literally become a 1984 society. Most Americans are just standing by and watching it happen. And Michael Snyder says, as I've been saying for years, if we stay on our current course, there is no future for America. Even Joe Rogan is using the word dictatorship to describe the direction that our country is headed. Many are putting their heads in the sand and are assuming that our system will correct that or correct itself eventually. But every single day, things are getting even worse. And so he says, if you love liberty, now is the time to stand up and say something. Time is rapidly running out and authoritarianism is on the march. Now, what that means to each each individual is going to be different. Okay? Not everybody is going to want to stand up and you know, be the nail sticking up that's you know, begging to get hammered. I agree with Michael Snyder. We've had plenty of warning. A lot of people have been slow to wake up to it, but uh, the warnings have been there. My good news to you is there is still 
time to act. There is still time to to fortify yourself for whatever is coming. And by that, I don't mean build a bunker, stock it with beans, bullets, and band-aids. I mean there is time to network with like-minded people. You don't need to have a majority of people. You just need to find a few people who think like you do and who are willing to stand up in your defense. I think Ammon Bundy's People's Rights Organization is an excellent example of what this looks like at the grassroots level. It really works. It helps people to organize themselves and peacefully come and stand for one another. Plus, it's a good idea to, you know, have your own house in order and especially have your spiritual affairs in order. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm joined by my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com. We do a little weekly uh, get-together, talk about what's going on, solve the world's problems, you know, pretty minor league (laughs) stuff. Eric, great to have you back on the show. Oh, thank you, Brian. Uh, I would like to say to people out there, rather than put on a mask, uh, don't pick up that cheeseburger. Let's talk about this. I mean, you you were teasing me when, when we when we first got on the line here about put down that mm-hmm. cheeseburger. Um, you know, there there is something to be said about uh, that comorbidity of obesity being a factor in who is, uh, you know, getting COVID and who is actually in great danger from it. Yeah, well, my understanding is the single greatest uh, risk factor associated with any serious consequences from this bug. In other words, if you're significantly overweight, not, you know, everybody has, well, most people carrying a few extra pounds here and there, so am I. I'm talking about people who are morbidly obese. If you're in that category, uh, the chances of your getting the sickness and becoming seriously sick are significant. Those are the people who are predominantly at risk. And when you add in being elderly, that becomes a double risk. The rest of us, not so much. But anyway, my point is there is almost nil in terms of any kind of educational campaign to let people know, hey, you know what? Being really heavy is really unhealthy, and it always has been, and now it's even more so. And this is the public health threat, not the Rona per se. It's what makes people vulnerable to sickness generally, including this sickness. If you're really heavy, you're vulnerable to getting diabetes. You're vulnerable to getting hypertension. You're vulnerable to a whole slew of chronic and acute health problems that are largely under your control. And that's the fascinating thing. This isn't just something that falls from the sky under your head. You have, it, you have it under control what you eat and how you live. And if you take steps to improve your health, lo, lo and behold, you can be healthy. And you can be at very greatly reduced risk of all of these problems. And it's just it's depressing and it's also angering that the so-called public health authorities are doing nothing to inform and educate people and encourage them to be more healthy. And instead, they're encouraging these people who are not healthy uh, to regard their poor health as the obligation of other people. And that, that's a profoundly wrong thing, in my opinion. Oh, I, I would agree. And it, this brings to mind something else, and that is there is a lot that we can do to bolster our own immune system. We hear almost mm-hmm. nothing of natural immunity. All we hear nothing. is, you know, you've got to get the vaccine. The vaccine is the way that we're going to beat this disease. Well, natural immunity is something that has worked well. And, in fact, if, if I'm not mistaken, there are studies now that are showing that uh, people who have, have had COVID and have achieved a, a degree of immunity from that actually have stronger immunity than the ones who got the vaccine. 
Absolutely, and I think that this is generally true. Now, it's anecdotal, but you and I, Gen X, Gen X people and older, remember when kids would go outside and play in the dirt, jump in the creek, and were, uh, in, in effect, had a much dirtier childhood than, than kids have today with the helicopter parenting and the safety cult and uh, the, the, the insane neurotic risk aversion. And our generation is healthier. You know, we're not plagued by all of these chronic sicknesses. We don't have the food allergies. We don't have the autism. We don't have all of the other problems that these, things, that these kids now have. And one has to ask the question, well, why is that? And it's because of these, I think, I think there's a correlation between all of these sort of preemptive palliative measures, vaccines, this, that, uh, that thwart and stymie the body's natural ability to develop strength and thus be resistant. It's, it would be resistant to these things. It's kind of like if you, know, if you run, if you work out, as I do, your body is stronger and your body can withstand more than the, the body of somebody who is weaker because they haven't gone out and exercised and haven't taken care of their health. I remember when I was doing martial arts regularly, one of the, the sayings that kind of stuck in my head is, strong people are harder to kill. And I assume yes. that's, that's true not only for the assailant, but also for germs and, and viruses. Well, yes. They also recover more readily. You know, I think about my, myself, and again, this is anecdotal, this is personal, this is just me. But here we are almost two years into this thing, this supposedly highly infectious, uh, very deadly respiratory disease, and I've not caught so much as a cough. And I think that's because uh, I'm in very good, very good physical condition and because I'm an avid runner. And, you know, my lungs are in really good shape because I go out and run four to five miles every other day. And I think that gives me a kind of immunity, uh, even leaving aside if I got the virus. I think that just makes me less susceptible, not just to this sickness, but to other sicknesses generally. I don't get these respiratory infections. And I do think that there's a correlation there. I can't prove it. But, you know, if you look around and look at the people who are getting sick versus those who aren't, there's a pretty strong correlation between being fit and, and having not too much fat on your body and being healthy and then the opposite. Okay, I'm having some second thoughts about that cheeseburger I had for breakfast, but hey. Now, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with a cheeseburger every once in a while. The problem is when you go to McDonald's every day or, you know, several times right. a week, and there's nothing wrong with having a soda as a treat every once in a while. The problem is when you have... Uh, a 20-ounce soda with every meal. It's moderation and it's reasonable behavior. That's the issue here. You know, you, your recent article about swim at your own risk, mm -hmm. I, I think, is, is one of the more timely things I've seen on how far we've come from where there was a time where people were expected to be responsible. But mm -hmm. instead, we have uh, been transformed into a bunch of little children, and, and the state or some regulatory, now it's even big business, has become sort of a parent like this, this, sure. this firm but, uh, but scolding parent who's there to keep us uh, wayward children in line. Which is an incredibly demeaning thing. If you are somebody who is responsible, judicious, uh, who exercises sound judgment, you know, this idea that because other people are irresponsible and don't exercise good judgment and who want you to be held accountable for their poor decisions is really annoying, isn't it? Oh, without a doubt. And, and it's not to say that, you know, sometimes bad things happen. I remember friends falling out of trees and breaking their arms sure. and stuff. But you learned from that. And, and from that exactly. we learned, okay, so when we pushed ourselves to go up the maple tree to this point, we found out that was not a good idea. And other friends right. didn't make the same mistake. Right. This is how you develop. <laughs> you know, as a kid, you learn not to touch the hot stove, sometimes by touching the hot stove. You learn not to walk out onto the pond that's frozen over unless you're pretty <laughs> sure that it's safe, right? You know, if you, if you prevent 
human beings as children, especially from, from learning these life lessons, what do you end up with? You end up with a person who is, is not only incapacitated, who has no judgment, but who is terrified of everything. They see risk around every corner. They haven't mastered the world. You know, when you grow up uh, learning to deal with the world and, and, and sort of probing here, testing there, seeing what you can do and what, what, what will happen if you do something that maybe isn't so smart, you develop a sense of competence and you develop a sense of your own good judgment. Like, I, you know, I, I, I know what I'm doing. You know, I'll, I'll be careful. I'll, I'll take prudent steps and I won't get hurt. And that turns you into an adult human being as opposed to a perpetual child in, in an adult body. Now, you have been a very bad influence on me in this respect, and I, I say that tongue-in-cheek, only because my, my wife strongly disagrees with something I learned from you years ago, mm-hmm. and that is, when I come to a traffic signal, and let's, I'm, I'm talking like at 4 o'clock in the morning, I come to yep. a traffic signal, and for whatever reason, it's not changing. I yep. do not sit there and wait, like a good child, you know, for the traffic signal to tell me it's okay to mm-hmm. go. If it becomes clear, man, this thing is not responding, I will look, and when I ascertain that it's safe, by gosh, I will go. Of course. Well, why shouldn't you? I mean, are you a primitive who's looking at a totem pole and right. scared that it's going to come to life and smite <laughs> you or something? I mean, the, the reason for the light is, is that it's to, it's to manage the flow of traffic and, and to provide right-of-way for vehicles that are crossing in opposing directions. And that's entirely reasonable and good and sensible when there's traffic. But if there's no traffic and the thing is just blindly and mindlessly red, and it's obvious that it doesn't detect the presence of your car and it's not going to change, you have to be kind of an idiotic automaton to just sit there and do nothing. It's stupid. Well, and like I say, I credit you with pointing that out that, you know, oftentimes we get conditioned to where, well, I'm just supposed to sit here until this thing tells me to go. I have decided to reclaim my prerogative as a thinking adult, and I'm I'm not going to be reckless, but I'm also not going to sit there like some trained dog waiting for the signal. Sure. You know, when kids grow up, they they have a, a natural inclination to ask why. And I think the worst thing that you can do when you're raising a kid is to say, just because. I say so. Right. I think it's incumbent upon parents to explain to their kids why, to, uh, to feed their rational curiosity, to give them a good explanation, because if you can't, then there is no good explanation. And then all you're doing is inculcating kind of a, a, a sense of mindless obedience to arbitrary authority. And that is, it's not only dehumanizing, it is dangerous. It is the kind of thing that characterizes people who live in tyrannical societies who walk around with their heads bowed and their shoulders stooped and who just do what they're told. We don't want people like that. We want people who want to know why and who expect a good answer before they do it. I don't know the name of the Star Wars character, but the guy who says, I have spoken. That's, I, I've pulled that more than once on my kids, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I see the point that you're, you're making, and I don't want to be treated like a kid. Eric, we're we're coming up on our break. When we come back on the other side of the break, I want to talk to you about uh, a recent column you had about how government saves us money. That's in quotation marks. Good stuff. All right. We're talking with Eric Peters from epautos.com. If you haven't checked out his website, first of all and foremost, it is one of the best places you can find automotive knowledge. And uh, if uh, if you're a fan of freedom, which I assume you are, you wouldn't be listening to this program, you'll also find a lot of great food for thought there as well. And some great comments to learn from. He's got a very informed audience. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with Eric Peters right after this.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm talking with Eric Peters from epautos.com. That's a website you ought to have bookmarked on your browser. You should visit him regularly. Eric, uh, let's talk about how government saves us money. You use some terrific automotive examples of how uh, a little regulation here, a little regulation there, and by gosh, pretty soon we're talking real money. Yeah, well, if anybody out there listening to this has done a brake job recently on a modern car, they'll probably already be familiar with what I'm going to talk about. Uh, A lot of times when you do a brake job on a car with disc brakes, uh, you'll have to uh, turn the rotors, the rotors being the discs that the pads clamp onto, and that's how the car stops. Now, uh, when I say turn, that's something that involves putting the rotor onto a special lathe that trues the surface, that cuts off some of the metal to restore it to a nice flat uh, plane so that you don't get that pulsating, wobbling thing uh, through the brake pedal. But the problem is that a lot of modern cars, in fact, probably almost all modern cars, have rotors that can't be turned or machined because they're made uh, of very light metal relative uh, to what the rotors of the past were made of. And the reason for that is because the car companies are absolutely desperate to figure out ways to cut the weight off of a car in order to comply with all of these federal fuel efficiency mandates to save you money by reducing how much fuel your car uses. But now, when you need a brake job, instead of getting the brake pads or brake rotors machined, you have to get them replaced. And so you're going to pay for a set of new rotors rather than just the machine work to have them turned on a lathe, which is less That's one example. Another is, if you've raised the hood of a modern car recently, you might notice how flimsy it is. I I kind of jokingly jest and say that it's kind of like the flag waving on the moon. You can almost just kind of like waggle it by yourself like that. And it's supported by a little flimsy prop rod. And you literally could. This is not an exaggeration. If you're a reasonably strong man, you could bend it in half with your bare hands. I know I could. Now, contrast that with the way hoods were in the past and fenders and all the exterior panels on most cars which were made of pretty heavy-gauge steel. And for that reason, they could take a significant impact with only minimal damage. And, you know, the term fender bender comes to mind. And, you know, bench your fender, no big deal. Get it hammered back out uh, and and maybe put some body putty in it, paint it, you're done, good to go. Now these minor impacts cause catastrophic damage because there's almost no structural worth or merit to the exterior panels of a car now. So if you get into, say, a 15-mile-an-hour bump in traffic, the whole front end of the car folds up. And now you're looking at $5,000 worth of repairs. And, of course, you're going to pay for that in terms of the insurance that you're paying for your car because the insurance companies aren't dumb, and they know what they're going to be on the hook for uh, if something happens to your car, and that's reflected in your premium. Most people are wondering, why is my car insurance so high, notwithstanding that I don't have any tickets and I've never filed a claim. The reason they're high is because the actuaries have looked at the data, and they know that if you do get into an accident or somebody hits you, there's going to be a big expense involved. And again, all of this is done uh, in terms of trying to shave weight off the car to meet these federal gas mileage standards, which the government talks about as saving you money. Well, you're going to pay for it in the form of higher repair costs and higher insurance bills. No, it's, this, is, this is one of the most informative articles I've read in a while. And, and it, I'm not even a guy who wrenches on his own cars, and it infuriates me. Because Mm -hmm. this is being done, you know, ostensibly we're going to save the planet, right? We're going to have better gas mileage and so forth. But 
I long for the days when real cars <laughs> once roamed the highways. I, I wish we could go back to it. I know, well, me too. And, you know, I'll tell you, I have a, a, an interesting personal anecdote involving uh, two trucks that I've owned, one that I still owned. I currently own a 2002 Nissan Frontier, and previously I owned a 98 Nissan Frontier, and they're basically the same truck. The only difference is that the 98 still had an exposed metal bumper, and it had glass headlights. Well, by the time my 2002 was built, Nissan had gotten rid of the exposed chrome metal bumper and instead put one of those plastic front ends that almost all new cars have now on the thing, uh, along with plastic headlights. Well, I hit a deer in the 98, and the only damage done to the thing was that the bumper was pushed in a little bit, and one of the headlights was cracked. So I used to come along to pull the bumper back out, tied it to a tree, put the truck in reverse, pulled it out, (laughs) went down to AutoZone, and got a new headlight for $25. Fast forward a little bit, uh, and in 2002, I I struck a deer in essentially the same way at the same speed. It took off the whole front clip, and I had to have an entire new front end, that plastic front thing, put on the car, and also a new plastic headlight assembly. And the total damage was about $2,200. Yow. Yep. Well, you know, some of these improvements uh, could be called improvements. Some of them, I think there's a big question mark over them. Uh, You also recently wrote about uh, who killed the electric car Mm -hmm. that worked. And and you and I have talked about electric vehicles before, but what's the story behind this? I'm not not familiar with the Michael Moore movie about uh, the electric car. Yep. Uh, the, the movie that, that Moore did was called Who Killed the Electric Car, and it was about one of the very early electric cars that was called the EV1 or the Impact, depending on you know, which, which one you go by. And GM made that back in the 90s, and I test drove those things when they were new. And Moore's thesis was that uh, you know, GM just didn't want to sell the things, and they, they pulled them off the market, and they did everything they could to make it a failure. Um, when in fact it failed because of the same reasons that plague electric cars today. They're too expensive, they cost too much money, and they cost too much time. This whole thing of having to plan your life around a recharge, even if it's a so-called fast charge, you have to think about when you're going to plug it in in order to be able to, to plan when and where you're going to go. And it's, you know, it's a huge hassle, and most people just don't want to increase the hassle of their lives. They want to be able to just get in their car in the spur of the moment and be able to go wherever they want to go without all of this elaborate planning. Anyway, fast forward a couple of decades, and GM came out with a vehicle called the Volt. And not many people are aware of the Volt. The Volt is what's called a series hybrid, and it works kind of like uh, a diesel electric mo- uh, locomotive, where there's a diesel engine that carries, uh, that produces the electricity that powers the traction motors. Only in this case, it was a small gas engine. Now. The brilliance of this design was the gas engine didn't actually propel the car. All it did was occasionally come on to charge up the batteries as needed. The thing could operate as a pure electric car for up to about 50 miles, which is enough for most people's daily drive. And if not, if that exceeded your daily drive, well, the gas engine would just automatically kick on and start to feed juice into the batteries, which never discharged completely, which is another big problem with the pure electric car because of the risk of the fire that comes with trying to fast charge the thing. And also, as anybody who knows anything about batteries knows, it's hard on a battery to discharge it to almost nothing and then recharge it and then repeat and do this over and over. That never happened with the Volt. So you had this car that combined the the, the best of both worlds. It was a car that could operate purely on electricity, and yet it was a car that you could jump in and drive anywhere, anytime, and not be hobbled by having to be tied to an electrical umbilical cord. 
And if anybody cares about the climate change thing and environmental impact, this was the solution. It worked. Not only did it work on a functional level, but it worked on an affordable level. If you want to get people driving cars that are good for the earth, this is the sort of car that, could be, that should be touted and promoted because it's something people could actually buy, unlike $50,000 Teslas with ludicrous speed that are only for elite affluent virtue signalers. Interesting. I was thinking about uh, electric cars as I was looking at some of the footage um, over the weekend of people trying to flee uh, coastal Louisiana to get away from Hurricane Ida. And I thought, yeah, how would it be to be in an electric car and stuck in that bumper to bumper traffic trying to get inland so that they're not in danger? Of course. And there's almost no media coverage of that, which I think is telling. Now imagine that. Imagine you and your family are in the path of a Cat 4, Cat 5 hurricane, and you and several other million people are trying to get out of Dodge quickly. And, you know, you have to travel a couple hundred miles maybe to get out of there, and there's not going to be any place to plug in on the way. Now this is something that's going to end up costing people their lives. It's not just a matter of inconvenience. And, again, it just astonishes me that the general press will not cover this stuff. Eric, we're down to about uh, the last minute of the show. Let's mm-hmm. let's take a minute here and brag on your website. I've I've talked briefly about it, but for people who aren't familiar with Eric Peters Autos, what can they expect to find? Well, I call it the web's best libertarian gearhead site because it's a place that uh, fuses uh, interest in cars with interest in philosophy and politics. Uh, we talk about new cars. We talk about classic cars. We talk about motorcycles. We talk about health issues, we talk about food, we talk about practically everything under the sun and hopefully do so in an intelligent and thoughtful manner without any suppression and censoring of people's views. And I'll tell you, I'm keeping pretty close tabs on you and your chicken coop because I'm watching your (laughs) efforts towards self-reliance, and that's a key part of it. It is, absolutely, and I'm hoping to get that thing uh, up and done uh, by the weekend. I'm trying to get all the supplies uh, I can, I, I'm going to need for it from Home Depot before they require me to show that I've rolled up my sleeve as a condition of being able to buy any lumber. I'm sure you and I have some interesting conversations ahead as uh, vaccine passports uh, appear to be looming on the horizon. We will, and hopefully they'll be good conversations. I see a lot of pushback, and that has got me very encouraged. All right. Well, I look forward to our next conversation. Eric, thank you so much. Have a great day. Likewise. You too, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show.